0: Hi guys, and welcome back to VR Essentials, where we talk about the practical uses of virtual reality. Now today, I'm super, super excited because in episode two, season one of Meta Business Podcast, we can get to learn all the behind the scenes and the business aspect of the metaverse. We're gonna be interviewing none other than the creator and lead developer behind Walkabout, Minigolf, VR, one of the highest grossing games that you can find on Facebook, Meta, Oculus Quest 2, the Pico Neo 3 Pro, also Steam VR, and probably other places. Now, you can skip to wherever you want to go by following the pinned comments or in the description below as well. And if you missed last week's interview, we spoke to Kluge Interactive, who released the most, well, one of the most popular, sorry, VR fitness games called Synth Riders. And of course, guys, if you want to keep up to date with next week's video, make sure you enable the bell after you subscribe. All right, without further ado, let's roll the tape. Uh, So, Lucas, thank you so much for, for being on the call today. I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, first of all, maybe you can just give us a brief introduction as to uh, who you are, what you do. And of course, uh, what was your role on Walkabout Mini Golf?
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah. So my name is Lucas Martel. I was the, or I am the, the lead dev on Walkabout Mini Golf. It was actually a 95% solo project, uh, at least up until the point where it first came out. And then over the last nine months, basically, I've added a few more members to to the team. So we're up to about 10 people now, basically. um, Doing courses, doing DLC, just sort of like generally, um, yeah, just trying to get, people want more courses. So we're trying to do a lot more as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, But as for my history, I'm actually, I come from the animation side of things. Um, so I had done a short film way back in the day called Pigeon Impossible, which was the basis for uh, Spies in Disguise, which was the Blue Sky film with Will Smith and Tom Holland. So awesome. see, I, come, I come from a very deep animation background and I've mm-hmm. been doing game dev for the last probably five or six years. Um, honestly, it kind of started off as one of those things where animation, you know, some of the projects, while they're very cool... Um, mm-hmm. they've gotten larger and larger. And I found myself in a point where I wasn't getting to do much of the hands-on stuff anymore. Um, right, It was more writing, directing, and then sort of like, yeah, um, directing is mostly meetings. Uh, and so game dev for me kind of started off as a way to get back to my roots of actually doing hands-on stuff and everything. So um, yeah, I've done, this would be the third game. I did one called 57 degrees North. Um, another one called laser Maser. Both of those were mobile games. And then uh, yeah. Walkabout game came out a little over a year ago. Right. So, I've been doing it for a while.
0: But what, why specifically uh, game development uh, from from animation? And, and what, what kind of the skill set uh, did you manage to take from your animating uh, to,
1: to the yeah. world of uh, 3D development, gaming? You know, I think that um, it's one of those things that there's a decent bit of crossover, especially on the 3D, on the art side of things, that sensibility and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stuff that transfers over. It's also quite a bit different in terms of the skills you need, especially for doing something like uh, like VR, especially on Quest. Um, in film, we're used to throwing, you know, you can throw a billion polygons onto the screen, and yeah, as long as you have a decent enough machine or render farm, it's not, the, it's not that big of a deal. Um, right. Whereas Quest, everything has to be obscenely optimized. Um, At the same time, though, a lot of the tricks that we use, there's equivalence to it in the game world. And so I came in with a pretty good understanding of baking things and how to optimize. There's a lot of additional stuff that I kind of had to learn along the way. Um, But uh, in general, I'd say a lot of it transferred over. Um, I did get a or I was like a couple credits short of a CS minor in college. Um, Mm -hmm. So I... I've been coding since I was a kid. In fact, I even played around making some games when I was a kid. So right. it's just it's always kind of been like animation and game development were always sort of like two of my passions that were just sort of slightly different, you know, different incarnations of the same general thing of trying to make trying to make computers do what you want.
0: So did you have to learn from scratch some of the coding languages? Or did you uh, were you able to transpire
1: everything? How 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 well yeah, you know, how did I you surmount that? Um, I mean the language stuff has never been that big of an issue just because I mean I started off when I was probably like seven or eight, writing something and uh basically started programming on a Commodore sixty four. Um right. and then uh up to Q Basic, I spent a lot of years making like trying to make as a as a pretty young kid, you know, ten or eleven trying to make um games in Q Basic and just learning the the concepts behind things. And then right. So the coding side of things is actually kind of one of the areas where I'm more comfortable. Um, Where it gets harder for me is once you start going beyond like unity is which we're using for walkabout is great because it does sort of like it provides that infrastructure and that baseline that you don't have to sort of invent the engine yourself. Um, At the same time, there's a lot more time. There's less time spent coding and trying to learn what the engine or the various SDKs and APIs are doing sort of under the hood because um, once you're trying to tap into something like the Oculus SDK, you really need to understand what the order of operations is and just how stuff is, is happening at a deeper level. Um, yeah.
0: What, what, what made you want to choose specifically Unity? Was it the, the ease of use, the, the kind of feel and mood the graphics provide? I mean, why not go with mm-hmm. something like Unreal and, and explore what that engine could have provided you?
1: Well, well, I mean, a lot of it is also just because all of the games we've done in Unity, um, and because we have done a couple games on mobile, mm-hmm. Unity just it seems to be more catered towards that. Um, I, I'd i actually be kind of curious to find out what folks on the Quest, um, if there's many other Quest developers using Unreal. Um, mm-hmm. I Just everyone I know seems to be using Unity just because largely it was sort of catered more towards that and there's some rendering optimizations that I know you can do in Unreal. Um, but um, I also started using Unity probably eight, nine years ago probably. Back, it was just a whole different ballgame and you know, use what you know. And even right. though I'd, I, we've actually played around with Unreal for a couple of projects, actually even more on the animation side of things. So it's one of those things that I'd, I'd actually like to dip my toe into deeper, but if you're starting a new project that, you know, I, I like to make the stuff, not necessarily just learn new software for the sake of learning new software, so. Um, and it takes a lot of years of using any piece of software to really get to that point where you know the ins and outs and you know where stuff is at and some of the, every engine has its quirks, so. Right.
0: I, I guess the only one that I can think of in terms of a uh, very simple kind of platform or the simplest platform would have to be Tetris effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is used the Unreal Engine, and it's a very simple platform. It's it's not like Assassin's Creed and all these kind of things, right? Um, yeah. So I guess they they I mean if you were curious, you know that would be a platform to, okay. to check out and see how they utilized it.
1: Oh um, yeah, one one that using one on Quest that was using Unreal. I see what you're saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when you had to learn new stuff, what did you do? Did you just take time off and go back and to school, so to speak, or did you learn on the job? How how did you manage to um, to deal with these of, kind of challenges?
1: Sort of learned on the job. So there's actually another game that I had started off with that was kind of my internal passion project through our studio, Mighty Coconut. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was kind of something that I was doing in the cracks and yeah, I was doing it in the evenings and stuff as kind of a way of just messing around and learning stuff. Um, I had also been doing it off and on kind of as a hobby thing for, for several years. So again, it's, it took probably three or four years of just sort of playing with it before I started using it more seriously. Um, and then the first game that we did 57 North was for the merge cube, um, -hmm. which if you know it, it's sort of, it's a just a foam cube that has basically tracking markers on it, but you could do some really interesting stuff with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so we did a branching narrative game with that um, that was kind of layered. So if you're looking at it through your phone, um, you actually see all of the, basically you can turn the cube and it actually has depth, almost sort of like you're looking into a shadow box sort of thing. Um, right. That was, uh, so we merge actually, um, we had talked to them and, you know, we had played around with it enough and, and helped deliver a couple of projects that they felt confident enough basically having, you know, um, supporting us and making that. Um, and that worked out very well for us as an animation studio, because the way that we went about it was very much like you would an animation project, the coding on it, you know, to get, you know, other than using their SDK to sort of activate different things, mm-hmm. there was very, very little that needed to be done from a technical standpoint. Um, the bulk of that one was way more about the art assets, which were right. all 2d hand painted. And that was something where, you wow. know, we had a- handful of 2d artists so we set nice. it up in shotgun with I, th- I think we had like 150 different layered images uh, and we just treated it like you would an animated project just sort of like okay we've done you know we did an animated series that had 2500 fully animated cg shots so wow nice. so that's sort of like you know that's a big render stuff. farm <laughs> yeah although everything's got gpu rendering so we've been using redshift from the animation side of things so yeah i think right. we had at the time we probably had probably 30, 10 which would have been sort of the, at the time, that would have been the state of the art, um, right. but, uh, but yeah, using Redshift and all that to, to crank out frames and stuff like it's, it's gotten so, so much easier, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of one of those things where once you have a pipeline and all that sort of thing. So we'd, we come at it from the opposite side, whereas a lot of game people might not feel as comfortable doing like massive amount of art assets. We're just sort of like, oh no, that's the part that we know how to do. We know how to build the pipeline right. around
0: that. So, that's really awesome. How did you guys end up, you know, working on these really cool shows of all these people that like you mentioned, Will Smith and stuff and with Fox
1: Yeah. How how do you manage to land this stuff? I mean, so, so Pigeon Impossible was a, it's a short film that I did. I I had some help on that, but I probably did about 80% of it. It took Mm -hmm. me about five years. And that was sort of the first, um, I was very lucky on that side of things because it was right in that batch of sort of the first kind of indie animated films that to a casual observer, looks, you know, almost like a Pixar uh, movie does. So it was just right at that time where it had just become possible on a home workstation, basically, to make something like that. Um, So that was a path that, I mean, literally, it was just like riding that wave. Sort of like, oh, here's here's a thing. It's just now becoming possible. We did it. And then the, the market was wide open. So I was able to get, you know, a manager and agent off of that, uh, the film, uh, to a couple of production companies, brought them on board, took it straight into Fox and basically set that up. That was 2009. Um, and then it took 10 years to actually get the film made. Wow. Um, so, which is pretty par for the course. And the fact that it got made at all was largely just luck. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, yeah, it happened to have the right, you know, the right elements at the right time. And, you know, a lot of those studio projects um, die before they ever see the light of day. And we just happened to get very, very lucky on that front. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of luck, right place, right time. And the fact that it was, like I said, one of those very, very early on projects when there wasn't much else like that. And the fact that it was a fairly mainstream four quadrant idea helped a lot.
0: Right. And are you by by nature someone who's very ambitious and who tries to uh, fly to Mars land on the moon kind of thing or are you generally just happy to be working on something that excites you uh, no matter how or where it would it would go?
1: I mean, I think I think both to some extent. Um, I think where I have found over the years that my sort of like my sweet spot is that I really like doing ambitious projects but with a smaller scale, you know, I'm not trying to be James Cameron or someone spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on a project. I feel much more comfortable in that. So like, let's get a small team of really, really, you know, um, awesome people, and let's make something very cool that doesn't seem like a, you know, a team of three or four people could possibly make it. But right. but, but, yeah, so that's sort of where I find that my sort of sweet spot is. So that's why kind of walkabout has become what it has is that, Oh, this is, that's my sweet spot. Like, you know, 10 to 12 people sort of like focusing on one thing, but a lot of, you know, a lot of our team is, is just rock stars. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the sort of project that I find myself most gravitating towards. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have a couple of bigger ones and I still, you know, pitch shows and and movies and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, I also tend to find that I like making stuff more than I like, spending a ton of time, because in the, in the film world, 90% of your time is spent trying to get the thumbs up and the green light to get it made. It always feels like you're just on the verge of being canceled. I feel much more confident when it's a project that's like, oh no, we're going to make it and we have the resources to do it.
0: Right. And did Mighty Coconut come about when you started to do game development or was it already uh, put together when you were doing the animation stuff?
1: yeah so we started it would have been 2014 so it was right on the heels of another short film that i did called the ocean maker um all the stuff is on our website um but yeah so i had done the ocean maker with a small team of eight we actually ended up um i kind of bribed all of the animation folks to work on that by i moved the production to this little island off the coast of belize and we basically we basically went down there for there were eight of us for about seven weeks and Mm -hmm. we we didn't render everything while we were there, but we pretty much came back with the film like ninety-five percent finished. Just in that sort of like, it's kind of like animation camp almost. Um, and yeah, and a couple of those folks who were on that have they came on with Mighty Coconut, and a couple of them are working on Walkabout Mini Golf right now. So, uh, where, where where
0: did the name Mighty
1: Coconut come from? It, because it's we kind of wanted something beachy and something that kind of hit that sort of Caribbean vibe, because right. essentially that was where the studio was started. Was Actually, it kind of in Belize. So, Um, but yeah, but then once we had that film uh, finished or close to finished, we realized, oh, we kind of want to keep the band together to you know, to what extent we can. So we started Mighty Coconut at that point.
0: Um, How did you guys decide to go? Okay, let's do something about mini golf.
1: So once again, sort of right place, right time, largely kind of an accident. Um, So the second game we made called Laser Mazer. Um, it's a game where you actually... Well, here, I'll grab my phone. You actually play it by physically walking around in your real world, like ducking around obstacles and stuff. So we're okay. using the AR, AR kit or AR core on an Android device. Um, basically, it's like you're 6 off tracker and you're just looking through the phone as you as you kind of walk through these mazes. So right. um, that game was super fun. We were so proud of it. And it actually won an award at Indiecade Europe. Um, it, it did very well critically and just totally tanked, um, from a, just from a, from a financial standpoint. Um, and one of the things that we realized was that that idea of using a phone to do all this was just so new and different that people couldn't quite, it was one too many things. So like, okay, so you're using the phone to do this, but then it's also sort of like this maze thing and you're avoiding like, it was one of those things that it was just a, a few too many new things for people to wrap their heads around. Right. Um, and so after that, we're like, well, we've got this technology. What would be something that would be a little bit more accessible? Um, oh, and the second thing about that was that because it was, it was way better for people to actually play outside and people felt self-conscious physically walking around. Right. <laughs> um, it was actually awesome at Indiecade Europe because they did it at uh, 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 Le Am. Um, in Paris, but they had a, it's basically a, 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 they have a huge courtyard. And so we had right. tons of people just like entirely spread out around the courtyard, just like literally like walking through the middle of people's conversations because they're, you know, they're in their own little virtual world. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyways, so we were thinking like, okay, what could we do that would be a little bit more accessible, a little easier to wrap your head around, um, but also something that wouldn't make people feel so self-conscious that they didn't need the physical space. Um, so we actually started, uh, we actually had the, the mini golf game as just sort of like a prototype that was started off on uh, just on phone. Um, mm-hmm. and then when the quest came out, I was like, Oh, wait a second. We're already on mobile. We're already optimized for so many of the things that I'm going to deal with. I just kind of did it. And then the next time I went out to indicate, I showed it to Oculus and they were like, yes, do that. And so then I spent the next basically year sort of getting it ready and actually releasing it. Um, so, so you yeah, you so then.
0: You showed them. You showed them a concept, or you showed them. Uh, Actually, a
1: fine. Uh, I got it working on the Quest One. I basically okay. just were like, "Oh, let's just see how you know how easy this is to develop for." And I, you know, it didn't take too long to sort of um, port it over to mm-hmm. to it at that point, or to the Quest at that point. And then I did spend probably two or three weeks just sort of optimizing it because to get it to run at frame rate on Quest One is quite the quite the engineering feat. Mm -hmm. um so i spent a decent bit of time with that and then literally i was yeah while i was there i i showed it to a couple of the oculus folks and at that point there was only the quest one and they were really looking for content it was a difficult i mean it still is a somewhat difficult platform to develop for but at the time i i had the sense that sort of like this is where vr is going and I didn't know that it was going to get there. Like, So we released actually two weeks before the Quest 2 came out, and we didn't even know that that was about to drop um, until literally like a week before our release date. And they're like, oh, by the way, we just announced this. We've got another headset coming out. Um, we'll send you one for testing because you should be sure to support it. And then the Quest 2 just sort right. of blew up. So very much, there's, jumping back to your original question, there's some, there seems to be a lot of sort of like right place, right time. But yeah, I do sort of like being on that cutting edge and I think a lot of it just comes down to that I have a lot of projects in mind that I want mm-hmm. to do. And sometimes it's just a matter of finding the, the right, the right device or the right technology becomes available that makes it something that I can do either solo or with a small team of people as opposed to needing a massive development studio.
0: Uh, so you mentioned that you're working with uh, Oculus. It sounds like you're working quite closely with them. Um, what, what's it like to to work with the folks at Facebook? I have to say Facebook because Oculus is right. Uh, Facebook is the actual company. So what what, right. what is it like to work with them? What kind of support did they bring you, or feedback, or I don't
1: know? Just give yeah. us some insights as to what it's like. I mean, so um, without breaking NDAs and stuff like. Um, the, of course. the Oculus team over there pretty much runs independently of the rest of, of Facebook. Um, so it so really So that's Facebook,
0: still, Facebook Reality Labs, is that right?
1: In fact, I don't even know exactly what, because okay. yeah, so, uh, but basically it's sort of like, it's, frankly, it's a lot more like working with any other console. Uh, basically like, yeah, like any other console um, that you're still going through certification um, yeah, in fact, that's probably the best way to put it, is that, yeah, much more like a console than it is about anything else, that you're just, mm-hmm. you have your dev relations person, um, got a tech person, and then once you release, there's an actual sort of store person that you could sort of have your points of contact. And it took mm-hmm. me a little while to understand that side of things. That's that's one area where I would, you would think that sort of like, oh, you've done some business or done some animation projects and stuff like that. that Like, oh, you know how it works, but the way that the games world works is like completely different it operates by its own set of rules and even the right like, you know a lot of the you know in the in the film world where you stay ha- you know you've got your you got your uh development person you've got an exec at the studio you've got a handful of people and it totally does not sort of like there is no one-to-one relationship with any of that right um but uh but yeah so i mean as far as the the actual support i mean it was one of those things where. I've been working much more closely with them sort of as we got up to the point of launch. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than that, it was mainly just sort of, I showed it to them and they're like, yes, do it and let us know. And so they would check in every couple of months, be like, hey, is it ready? I'm like, yeah, I need a little bit more time. Um, And then it wasn't really until the game was like about, you know, basically ready to go into certification that really started working more closely with them, so.
0: Right, and what what about, uh, because you, you now have Walkabout Mini-Golf uh, on Steam, what is it like to work in contrast with people from Steam or from Valve, or is it, uh, you don't really talk to anyone, you just upload it and
1: then let basically, it roll its own? Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, I'm sure that some of the AAA folks probably have a contact person over at Steam, but mm-hmm. I mean, the nice thing about Steam is that it is sort of this the openness um, the downside of Steam is that, yeah, you don't have someone sort of helping you through that. You don't, you know, they just have so many different games um, coming through all of that that you really sort of are kind of more on your own, basically, to, to figure it out. Um, it's also a totally different, there are... Say, there's say what you will about sort of like the walled garden approach i mean apple is sort of the same way just in the sense of sort of like that you know here's our device and here's how it mm-hmm. works and here's the os and everything is sort of a very closed ecosystem um while that can be so a lot of people don't like that especially on the consumer side of things as a mm-hmm. developer it makes things like 10 times easier to develop for because you're not having to think of like oh what happens if this G2 user happens to have a 970 instead right. of a, 10, you know, a 1070 or something? Just, there are so many weird hardware combinations and so many people who are, who have set their own settings set up in a, in a very different way than you could ever sort of possibly test for, so.
0: Right, and what, what are some of the things you've had to do for SIEM to make sure that uh, it can work on cross-platforms from HTC to Valve to HP Reverb or, or different cards, you know, all, all this kind yeah. of stuff?
1: So, I mean, less of it on the direct side of things. I think mm-hmm. that the bigger thing, so I actually brought on a couple of people to help with the Steam port. Um, Farbridge is the name of the studio. It's a friend of mine studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with them um, on a handful of projects throughout the years. So they handled the, the Steam port directly, but I will say that I think the, the biggest challenge on Steam at the moment, it's specifically sort of a Steam Unity thing because everyone's sort of like, oh, OpenXR is where everything's going. However, right. the OpenXR integration isn't actually ready for prime time yet. And yes. because everyone's ready, everyone's like, oh, OpenXR is going to solve all these problems. They kind right. of stop developing all those other ones. So we're in a weird in-between state where in a year from now, VR dev is going to be awesome. But right now we're at this weird sort of like where the new stuff isn't working yet and the old stuff has been EOL for a year or even more in some cases. So right. There's just a whole lot of that sort of that sort of stuff. Um, it's also complicated a little bit more by the fact that because we're doing a lot of updates and we are mm-hmm. we're going to be re- releasing a lot more content, we need everything to live together in the same project. So we had to go up to Unity 2020 for a variety of reasons, but Steam would have been way happier to be back at 2019. So you kind of you have to sort of like find that that you can't just sort of go with the ideal solution for each platform because you need it all to live in a single project and, and yeah, play nice with each other, which uh, the, the VR platforms definitely do not play nice with each other at the moment.
0: Right. Hence OpenXR, which we all hope it'll be, that, It's going to be great when it's
1: ready, yes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so what about cloud computing? Now we have, uh, at the moment, we, we have Valve who released a Steam Deck, right? Mm-hmm. Personally, I was, what I was excited about was the fact that even though it's not VR ready at the moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, if it does well, which hopefully it does, then obviously they would come up with a new device. Mm-hmm. And then logically speaking, that device would be compatible with the next Valve, which they're planning to release. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know when exactly it could be next year or in two years, but it's yeah. supposed to be a wireless device, uh, regardless what it's like. So. How, how does the cloud computing excite you in terms of getting, you know, Walkabout, golf and other future projects in the future, uh, you know, in the future uh, to get more distribution so more people get to to try it?
1: Um, well, I guess that'd probably be a different thing. So like cloud computing versus Steam Deck would be to- like two very, very kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, it feels like, because, and this is, I haven't really done too much research in it, but my understanding is Steam Deck is essentially sort of a, It's essentially sort of like a laptop but put into a a form factor that is almost more like a switch is kind of my understanding of it. A portable PC kind of thing, yeah. Basically, yeah. But it's not actually doing sort of like Stadia type cloud, sort of like pulling everything in remotely, is it?
0: Uh, To my understanding, no. It basically... uh, It's doing things locally. It's doing things locally, that's right, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that my gut says that VR, I think there's always going to be... There's still going to be a PC VR, sort of, like, there's people going to be developing games for that. I think that VR is largely... I mean, it's already moving away pretty hard from that. I feel like it's going to be moving more and more towards standalone devices, Um, and whether that's a Steam Deck tethered to something. I don't actually know the specs on it, sort of, like, just how that compares in terms of, like, say, yeah, I'm sure that it's got more power than uh, than like the Quest Two, but I don't know. I can't imagine that it's like a drastically different thing. So, well, I think I think what's very interesting about it is that you
0: can basically plug in a normal display and run any Steam game. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing. But you yeah. can't plug in, uh, you know, your Pico Neo into it or mm-hmm. or, or your Quest into it using the the cable or. Or, or, or the wireless version, which yeah. I think is,
1: is very interesting that that's lacking there. Um, and it seems like they likely will fix, or it, I thought I even heard um, someone saying that, oh yeah, they're already starting to play around with that because enough, there's been enough interest around that.
0: Right. That likely
1: someone will be doing that. And that's the other thing, sort of like, I feel, I feel like a lot of folks have said, I think that VR sort of like, especially with what we're doing is sort of like, we do sort of need a bit more of a unified experience and a bit more of like a console type thing, which is like, that's kind of why Oculus is doing what they're doing at the moment with the Quest. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like there's so many people now who are getting Quests and they're like, oh, wait, I already have a gaming PC. Let <laughs> me hook it up, whether it's by Air Link or by a virtual desktop or something, and they're able <laughs> to play some of those other games. So I feel like it's not a mutually exclusive thing that, especially if that feature of being able to hook up a standalone device and get the extra power of a PC, I feel like that's going to open up. It's going to open up some possibilities that weren't there before. And we just need to get more devices. Like to me, it's less about sort of what specific device it is. We just need a lot more people in VR right. in order to make it viable, especially we're sort of the lucky ones that, you know, that we have a, we have a, a game that's doing well, especially on, on Quest, which is the biggest platform, but it's still a very difficult... I know a lot of people say, oh, I want more AAA games. And the reality is there's just not enough people with the hardware to support, you know, a, even a $20 million um, production budget, is, unless you're someone like Valve or someone who can sort of like kind of throw money at it until and make something amazing, regardless of sort of like how much it costs there's only, you're only going to get the sort of like the two or three developers who are developer publishers who could even right. sort of do that. So. And also, there.
0: I mean, you, you worked in uh, mobile gaming before and uh, it wasn't, I mean, it, to me, to my, to, uh, to my recollection, uh, mobile gaming on, on a phone wasn't, mm-hmm. especially on an iPhone, wasn't really great until things like Angry Birds came out. I mean, mm-hmm. that really put mobile gaming to my recollection, really on the map, perhaps there were mm-hmm. others before that. Uh, and this yeah. is very casual kind of game because I think most people in the world mm-hmm. are hardcore gamers. I mean, most people just yeah. take the train or whatever and yeah. play something light. And
1: uh, I, I will say that one of the things that's most interesting is that the number of folks that, I mean, this is... Um, this is kind of just word of mouth, but we have gotten so many just emails and messages for a variety of people, um, especially older folks and people who, well outside of what you consider should be like that core gamer audience, who have gotten a quest either to play this one or that it was one of the games that sort of got them, um, largely for the social aspect. There's something about being in the same physical space with someone and yeah, like it's a really fun way to just sort of hang out with a friend or a relative or a grandparent even. So it, it does seem like that's not all that VR is by any stretch of the imagination. You can do so many different things with it, but I do feel like that's the, that social aspect and the more casual is, it's tapping into an audience that hasn't been as well served by VR, especially because for so long it was, you know, you had to be a pretty powerful, you had to have a pretty powerful PC and some expensive hardware to do it. So I feel like that's, this is a brand new market that's just opening up.
0: So for Walkabout walk about MiniGo, how challenging was it to actually develop the multiplayer side?
1: Um, it wasn't as difficult as I was expecting. So I had never done multiplayer before. Okay. Um, and in fact, it was something that I didn't even have it in there until Oculus was sort of like, I was like, hey, we're almost ready to go. And they're like, you really need to add multiplayers. Like, okay, I'll learn how to do multiplayer. So fortunately, a golf game is something that is one of the easier ones. You're not having to worry as much about player lag and just a lot of the balancing things because everyone's running their own physics simulation on their own um, on their own system. So it was relatively easy to get it Going um, after launch, there was probably a few months in there where I kept where I, we added a lot of features to it because I think the more difficult thing was finding how do I put this? It was finding a lot of the things that frankly no one had kind of even dealt with before because being on a being on a quest. Most people weren't playing hour long matches. They would be playing like, you know, you know, even if you hopped into something like 10, 15 minutes is probably about the length. And even if you ended up playing with someone for an hour, it was different rounds. Whereas we literally had people playing hour and a half games if you had five people in a room on a difficult course. So there was a lot of times where people were just like, oh, they just took off their headset to go to the bathroom. And it would disconnect them. So we had to add a lot of ways to help people reconnect and to let people join games in progress. And it's a lot of that like once you, once you sort of know the problem, it's not that difficult to actually implement the solution. Um, It's just figuring out what those what the problems are to begin with. And it was sort of, yeah, it was just kind of a weird spot where like no one, like to my knowledge, not many people have, have sort of had to deal with that. It's sort of like, what happens when people, yeah, when you've got a multiplayer game and someone just takes off the headset for 10 minutes and mm-hmm. goes, gets a drink. So little things like that, that, that proved to be an interesting sort of user case to account for.
0: Is a lot of the coding uh, that you implement in VR very similar to a traditional 3D or 2D uh, game using Unity?
1: Yeah, it's it's virtually identical to uh, as far as the coding side of things, other than getting your input from that. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the bigger difference would be on the design side of things and really designing for VR and um, thinking a lot about interactions. I think the one other challenge that we we have, especially because um, golf is very much a one controller game, where you typically will just hold two, hold the controller with um, uh, two hands. Mm-hmm. Um, designing for that has been a bit of a challenge just because half the number of buttons. Um, so you can't do some of the more complex interactions or, yes, yeah, some of the, the multi or, yeah, like two thumbsticks sort of like uh, uh, dual controller sort of stuff. So um, there was a decent bit of that that was also sort of like there's I, I think that most of the golf games are doing the same thing. But it's a problem that everyone has to deal with when they're kind of going against the grain with something like that.
0: Right. And I mean, I also imagine, how do you manage to get, because you wanted to get it to a certain extent as close as possible to the real thing, right? So mm-hmm. when people are under the headset, they feel yeah. like they're on the course, they feel like they're actually playing mini golf. Yeah. Um, I mean, how how tough is it to get the ball to respond in a specific way when it's hitting uh, or colliding with, you know, uh, uh, I mean, when you're hitting the ball to get it yeah. to re-respond, uh, spin in a way or mm-hmm. stop in a certain way or, uh, I don't know, the feel with the, gra- the virtual grass, all this, how-, how tough is it to get all those pieces together?
1: Uh, so I happen to have done a lot of physics stuff. In fact, the other game, um, it was on our website for a little while, but it was actually a, a pinball puzzler. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the game that I actually hope to come back to. It's called Ballanova. Um, I hope to come back to that maybe in another six months, once the rest, once the team is fully up to speed and we're, and we're, uh, we're cranking on that. I might, I'd love to dip my toe back into that that, because it's one of those things that it's like, it's only like six months away from completely finished. Um, it just got abandoned for, you know, for life reasons. Um, so I had actually wrote the physics engine of that, um, myself and having done that and learned the ins and outs, I already sort of had a bag of tricks and knew what to kind of run into. So, that kind of proved to be a bit of the, um, basically I was able to kind of work out all the problems. So when it came time to this one, it wasn't as difficult, but it was largely just because we had already spent a lot of time solving a lot of those problems and um, and dealing with some of that. So yeah, it's not as, it's it's not easy, but it's also the only thing that is physical and that is moving around is basically the the single ball. And then we do have some obstacles that spin and of course your putter um, but it's a relatively small set. You're not having to deal with balls colliding. Um, actually, I guess we do actually have that in the menu, but but in general, sort of like sphere collisions and all that sort of stuff aren't nearly as complicated as a lot of other physics that game the game folks have to deal with.
0: Well, what were the most important attributes to the game when you first conceived it and then started off to producing it mm-hmm. uh, to you that you know what? What what are the core things, the core values, or the core mm-hmm. items that you wanted from the game, uh, without going too crazy? Because I know it's a very creative kind of uh, production.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that probably the the biggest thing that that people notice the most is that we we really wanted. There's a lot of games like this where they'll sort of like, oh, it's sort of like here's a hole, and then. You'll just go into a void and like, here's a different hole. And I, I felt that one of the things that's kind of fun about mini golf is the fact that you're on a course and you can see, oh, I'm going to come up to that hole, you know, in a, you know, in a little bit, or that you see a a place up at the top of the cliff that uh, eventually, you know, that you're going to get up there. Um, And so I think that one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing was sort of like, it's. Not just the holes; it's the entire environment around you, and making sure that everything connects and is actually walkable, just like a real course. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is probably the the biggest thing that we spend a lot of time on. Um, that uh, that yeah, that that kind of defines what the what the game is, as opposed to many other golf games.
0: What what are some of the thrills that you would want? Or would you 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 would want to see in uh, in the game that you feel are a nice to have, but
1: not not a must have? Um, you mean things that we've already done or things that we're hoping to add in there? Well, th-
0: things that you wish, you know, uh, because you, you must have had such a huge list of things that you would have loved to just throw into the game, but you're like, mm-hmm. well, we can do this later. We can do that later because yeah. it's not a must have. It's, it's a nice to have. I mean, so on our
1: Discord, we have sort of a kind of a roadmap, it's more, but it's more of a just like, here's a list of things that like people have recommended and like, yes, we're going to get to them at some point. Um, we've kind of been, we haven't updated a few of them more, re- I mean, the, the more recent one that we added was smooth locomotion. Um, mm-hmm. The flying ability was actually something that, that was never part of the design. And then as we were testing out the smooth locomotion, one of um, one of our course designers found a way that they could sort of like glitch off the map. Like, but it's kind of nice to be able to go here to this place. And so then we just implemented flying properly. Um, and that turned out to be a huge hit that was never sort of like, yeah, just one of those happy accidents. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're wanting to do a lot more with different, um, uh, different course modes. Um, race mode is something that a lot of people have asked for. Um, also, just a handful of quality of life stuff in terms of um, – how you're managing. Like I know right now, if you are in a, if you've got two people in the same room playing against someone mm-hmm. else remotely, we need just some basic stuff to be able to like, Oh, push the talk or mute. You know, there's a handful of things like that that are just basic quality of life things. But our list of those is so long that it's sort of like, we're getting like, we're slowly chipping away at everything, but we do have quite literally a mountain of, of, Of things that are on our list. So we're just kind of getting them in order of priority, but also when it makes sense, like when you redo one part of the system, it makes sense to also fix, you know, if you're ripping out the kitchen, or if you're ripping out the sink, fix up the whole kitchen at the same time, basically, while you're making a mess of it. So, um, but yeah, so there's a there's a lot of those. And luckily, we're in a boat where because we are a very actively developing game, we've released Three courses, we do have another one that's gonna be dropping here before too long and then DLC after that. Um, so it means that we kind of get to keep coming back and we get to keep hitting a lot of those requests that people have had or just things that are on our personal wish list that would be cool. Okay. So take us
0: through uh, what, what, how, how do you go about designing your maps? So think first you'll go to the pub and have a beer and brainstorm. How, mm-hmm. how, how did the maps come into fruition?
1: Well, so we actually just did, so we're a 100% virtual studio, but a week ago or two weeks ago now, we just did um, so our trip, yeah. first, yeah, well, we, we actually did an in-person, uh, like an offsite. We actually did sort of a company retreat where we hatched the next sort of seven courses that we're going to be working on. Um, we kind of knew, but it was sort of like, oh, prioritizing and like, okay, here's the release date that at least we're aiming for. We haven't announced anything yet because with a team of our size, if one person is out for any stretch of time. Like it can push back release dates and all that sort of thing. So, um, so we, we spend a lot of time. I mean, for us, it's always a balance of sort of like, what is the, what is the theme of the course, especially in mini golf? That's, that's super important. What's something that's different than a lot of the other things that we have done. Um, we always like to kind of like keep it fresh and try to, we're starting to push quite a ways beyond sort of like what people would think of like traditional mini golf. And now we're getting into just like, what would be the coolest place you can think of to put a mini golf course. And now we're starting to do that, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then, so it usually starts off with, uh, with that sort of general sort of like what it is. And we usually come up with some basic design things like here's the shape language. Here's the type of gameplay. Um, for instance, one of the things that we do a lot of is, um, we think about just even like what are the materials that they're going, that a course like this would be made out of. So for instance, Stacks, which is sort of on these like um, Celtic sort of like sea stacks, it's all rock. There's no wood. And all of the barriers of the holes consist of um, they're very curvy, organic shapes, but they're basically the borders are all created by placing rocks along those borders, which gives it a very irregular feel and, You can bounce off those rocks, but there's also the risk of, like, if you hit a crevice in the wrong way, you can go shooting off the opposite way you expect it to versus something like Cherry Blossom, um, which was designed more out of, like, um, sort of Zen Garden, like, very, Mm -hmm. very flat, perfect angles that you can predict how the ball is going to bounce off of those um, in a much more predictable way. So we think a lot about that, um, and sometimes that defines the play. We're also starting to get into a few more actually introducing some new mechanics um, very slowly, but yeah, kind of coming up with some interesting things that again, sort of take mini golf beyond sort of what people typically think of it as, but it's Mm -hmm. still very accessible, very fun. Um, I guess I'm kind of, But you were asking about the actual course creation part of it then. So typically we've been using Gravity Sketch a lot, um, which is a 3D, basically it's like a VR sketching tool But the great thing about that is that we can go in and in VR, we can actually sort of like start, we usually start with just line wire work, just like roughly sketching out the shape, like where's the path of the holes going to be at. And you can do it very, very quickly. Um, It's also very nice to do it that way because you can start to picture like, oh, what is the height as opposed to just doing like a top down map or something like that. Right. Um, Move stuff around very, very quickly and just generally sort of get a rough, like, shape and start putting down the sort of temp holes. Um, And then we go through and we actually really start to like, okay, now that we know the rough shape, let's actually start try to make it real. So we come up with the actual hole designs. We come up with, um, a lot of times we'll nudge things around to make it just visually more appealing. We always try to design in a couple of, some you might call them wow moments. Not every course has them quite the same way, but like on Taurus Trap, behind me here, there's the mm-hmm. moment where you never even see the back nine of the, of the course until you come out of the cave and suddenly there's this whole other part of the map that you've mainly just, maybe you've seen a couple of palm tree tops back there, but you've never actually gotten right. to experience it. So mm-hmm. we actually kind of try to do that to hide little areas so that you, you come across them throughout the normal course of play. Um, so after
0: you've proved the art direction, that's when it goes into production or does everything
1: get interweaved? I mean, everything is kind of production. Generally, what we try to do is we try to get a course fully playable. And -hmm. so it's basically like a gray box. Um, Okay. So um, myself, Henning, and now we've got one other person on the team kind of doing these designs, and everyone has their own thing. Henning, when he does his designs, he does lighting. He, like, really gets it to the point where, like, this almost feels final. Um, And then a modeler comes in and actually does the more detailed work. When I'm doing stuff, it does tend to be more true gray box. Like it's just blocks and spheres Mm -hmm. and sort of like, okay, I know there's columns here, there's walls here. Um, And then we let our concept artist sort of like do a draw over and kind of define what the space is going to be. But still, before it goes into that modeling, it's fully playable. So you can actually play all 18 holes and walk through the course. So It's well laid out. You know exactly what what the course is going to be. It just hasn't, it doesn't look pretty yet.
0: Uh, You mentioned that you work remotely. So... How do you manage to, to get everybody, keep them motivated and, you know, get all the information across and, and you know, doing this remotely
1: because it can't be easy? Um, it definitely, you lose some stuff by working remotely. Um, this game actually is probably one of the better ones for doing it this way, largely because each course takes about like three weeks, three to four weeks through each step of the process. So the designer will basically be working out the gray box. Like I was just talking about for, yeah, probably about three weeks. And by the end of the three weeks, they probably have like a playable version of it. Um, then the modeler comes in, does their thing. And then we get into lighting and optimization and finaling and everything. So there's a few, there's a few other things in there as well, but in general, it's sort of like, it's, you could just do sort of like a weekly check-in as opposed Mm -hmm. to, for us, coming from the animation world, it's not uncommon to have someone working on, oh, they're working on a shot, and oh, this shot's only going to take like, especially for TV animation, it's going to take like three hours. And so you need to give them like 10 shots and constantly checking in, that sort of stuff. So right. luckily, that um, that sort of helps. The, other, the thing that is actually the best for us is, well, Gravity Sketch, we're using some of their co-spaces so we can actually all hop into the same Gravity Sketch together Um, and actually be drawing on stuff and like pointing at stuff. Um, We do the same thing with the courses too because we can actually all hop into a course and it's almost like being in the same room with them that, you know, we can point out stuff like, oh, hey, I found a little bug here. I found this little crack that lets the ball fall through or a variety of other things that you can actually Mm -hmm. just, you have those conversations right on the course. So, Right, that's very um, helpful. Yeah, so, I mean, VR in particular actually, VR multiplayer in particular, it makes that, Actually, work surprisingly well.
0: And uh, now, I, I, I mean, you, you've been in the business for quite a while, so I wouldn't say you guys are an indie dev because you have proper studio. Uh, what some of the things that you think? Uh, let's just you know think like sliding doors. Uh, you know the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're an indie developer, how do you think this project? Would, I mean, how would you have started this project compared to? Uh, how you actually did it, because you you did it uh, not so much as an indie development, but more
1: of a a studio.
0: How different do you think it would have been?
1: I think, I mean, I actually, this was very much an indie development, because we've been doing animation for a long time, and this was basically sort of Again, I had one person helping out a little bit on some of the actual modeling stuff, but Mm -hmm. again, it was like 90% just me as a solo dev. I did that. And so the actual release of the project, I did completely independently of, um, you know, it was nights and weekends and it was kind of my COVID project while we were in lockdown that I was sort of like, I need something to focus on. So that was largely what, how I was sort of like dealing with the situation was by not dealing with it and just going into my little VR world right Um, so uh so no so i mean this was actually done very very much like an indie project i mean now yes we are treating it more as sort of like a a studio but i mean it depends on your definition of that like we're still very much Mm -hmm. an indie studio but it's just grown to have a, a handful of folks so so maybe yeah so i guess that was more sort of um yeah what the what was the question again specifically
0: well, no, I'll, I'll just say to another question because you kind of, uh, you kind of answered it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think what's interesting also is did you, when you started this thing, uh, because you just mentioned you, you started, they started it on your own. Did you think about monetization and all this kind of stuff before you did it? Or because a lot of indie devs I talk to don't really think about how they're going to make money from the game. They just want to mm-hmm. make something that makes sense yeah. uh, and that's fun for them to do. But mm-hmm. what was your mindset when you started this thing? I mean
1: I think it's a balance like it was definitely not done sort of like as a as a money thing and like the monetization thing we're not doing right at least right now we do have DLC coming out here before too long but right now it's sort of like it's a one time sort of premium premium game so I didn't think too much about that side of things but at the same time I did want something that I can justify. I've got a wife and kids and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So like I did want something that would at least hopefully pay off the amount of time that I was putting into it um, in an ideal world. But we've had a couple of, basically our other two games did not do that. So I did not expect it to be nearly as successful as this has been. Um, But I would also say that there was a little bit of thought in that just because sort of like, oh, mini golf just seems like not from a money standpoint, but strictly from a sort of sense that like an audience standpoint, like they're like, I want a really, really awesome mini golf game. Other people want it. Virtually everyone loves mini golf. And it just, so like there were, there were, there were definitely some, some thoughts along that, but I think it was more about sort of like thinking what the audience wants versus straight, just sort of like, how are we going to make money off this thing?
0: So. And so when, when you started the project now, obviously it was self-funded by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then did you, did you go out and try to seek funding? Uh, if so, how do you manage to, to find the funding to expand the team?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so, no. So at the moment now we've basically, uh, it's all sort of self-funding. I have other than the, you know, other than setting up, uh, basically projects within the sort of like the LA system for film stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've. I guess there was sort of like the one project, a film project that I brought on a a private investor for. It's something that I have not had great luck with. And it seems like a lot of times you end up spending more effort going after that or trying to find that person Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just making it. So I think that a lot of it comes down to more like, I mean, this is the thing that I would recommend probably to a lot of other indie devs or people trying to do it is sort of like try to set the scope something that you can do that does not require that. Um, this right. was the sort of thing that, like, if this had just been sort of like, oh, those four courses, or, you know, maybe we would not done an extra course or two, it would have been, you know, I still would have been super happy with it. Um, it's only been because we, like, it's done well enough that that now sort of like the the team, it's sort of like the the game is actually funding the team. So the more people buy it, the more, you know, the more courses that we're able to put into production. And we're hoping that the DLC... Like that's another thing that's sort of like, we don't need the DLC to make money. We just need it to break even so that we can keep the team on and keep doing more and more courses.
0: I do think this is where Facebook comes in because, uh, I mean, obviously we're still at a stage where things are kind of still new in VR. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of flexibility from various different uh, marketing uh, distributors or hardware manufacturers Mm -hmm. to try and get more content and not just uh, any content, but content that potentially has a commercial, uh, viability to it. And I think mm-hmm. um, uh, Walkabout Minigolf is quite polished. I mean, you know, uh, yes, there are other applications like, for example, Super Hot, uh, which isn't as uh, texturally or graphically uh, mm-hmm. lavish, but it does what it set out to do, which is why it was also uh, successful in its own right. Mm-hmm. And then you have Walkabout Minigolf, which is more polished, but also at the same time it works and it does what it's uh, set out to do too. So, uh, do you find that indie devs, because you just mentioned it, can be quite tough to go out and seek funding, which I think is the problem for ninety nine point nine percent of of people. Yeah. Uh, so do you think like platforms like Facebook that come around provide that ease? Uh, not really think so much about funding. Where you, if you mm-hmm. just know how to code, you got a few friends, uh, you put something together that makes sense and is playable and fun, uh, yeah. then you can just pitch it to 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 people
1: like Facebook or whatever to just get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so, I mean, I don't know if I can say, but basically, yeah. So Facebook didn't actually fund anything with this one. I think
0: that, I mean, the ease of being able to get something out as opposed to trying to put it on a mobile
1: app. I mean, it's impossible. There are millions of, I, I think that what I would say with that is sort of like, especially for indies, sort of like, it's very difficult to sort of know the market until you've released a game or two. So the first, so 57 North, um, we did that. It's like a, it's a little over an hour. It's fully narrated with all that. We actually did that project in less than two months. Um, and it, again, it was largely because we had a, we had us, you know, we had five or six people on it that were basically, they were rolling off of an animation project. We had a window. So like, okay, let's do this and, and, and get it done. Um, but, uh, But that was very, so I mean, ironically, that one actually had way more people behind it than Walkabout, um, at least at the time that we were were doing the development on it. But um, that one did okay. Actually, the thing that was kind of interesting about that one is because of the Merge Cube is that there were a lot of folks who got the Merge Cube, but there weren't a ton of apps available for it, especially at the time. Um, And so when people were talking about the Merge Cube, we naturally came up with the conversation. I think that's sort of where we happen to get lucky and land with this where a lot of folks, if they're getting a quest, you know, they're likely at least aware of Walkabout, which is, a, you know, again, that's largely just luck at the time that we happen to, to launch. Um, so I think that one thing that would be a really good sort of recommendation for um, indies is to focus on sort of like that cutting edge stuff or something new and something original that the AAA studios aren't going to be able to do because it just takes them so long or they're not in a position where they're able to take risks. So coming up with what that hook is, like whether it's a gameplay thing or whether it is the actual, the device that you're aiming for, um, Mm -hmm. those things can help dramatically. Because if you're just trying to do just any mobile game, mobile is an absolute nightmare to try to make money on unless... You have that sort of like that one killer thing, you know. Unless you become Monument Valley, basically, and you do something so cool and so original that it just it becomes its own own little thing. And even then, especially on mobile, you still have to have a lot of know how and marketing savvy. And that's, I think, an area where a lot of um, indies have a hard time, just because it's difficult to get that it's difficult to get that message out there.
0: Exactly. So. I wanted to ask you, uh, have you thought about, or are you, uh, working with Pico interactive or even trying to get your app on the Vive Focus 3? Cause I know that HTC mm-hmm. are trying to build more content for enterprise, uh, so that when the professionals using their, the businesses using the headsets can mm-hmm. also offer something a bit more casual to, uh, to the users there.
1: Yeah. I, so I guess, We're talking to a handful of folks, so I can't, because there's all sorts of NDAs with that, I can't really say specifically, Mm -hmm. Um, but our goal is to support as many platforms as... Makes sense, basically. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, we're on Steam now. We're talking about a couple of other, a uh, couple of those we also have. We still have the AR, uh, the iOS and Android version of the app that's, it basically is almost done. Um, that's actually been a couple of other thing reasons that we haven't just totally put the finishing touches on that. But that one's full crossplay. Um, with the VR. So you can actually have, you know, if you've only got one VR headset in the house, but everyone has a phone, everyone Mm -hmm. can still be playing together, um, which is nice. Um, So we're kind of going in order of priority, just in terms of like, you know, who has the most headsets or at least to guarantee that the time that we're spending on the ports um, makes sense. Um, Part of that is also that, again, because we're a ongoing game, it's not just a question of um, will you sell enough but every time we come up with a new course we need to support it we need to do like there are constant sort of updates that needs to happen and so every time you add a platform to that um it's not just a straight port that that then you just do it and you're done you have to continue supporting that for years to come so i think that's something that every vr developer is dealing with right now Mm -hmm. um it's a such a small community that we a lot of us chat that is always the thing so like everyone wants to be on platforms but the yeah the the porting and the support and making sure that sort of like that uh, that that it's um, able to sustain itself is always the challenge, especially with new standalone platforms.
0: Um, just a sidetrack, very quickly. Uh, just circling back to opening. So, do do you guys really think in the world of development that it will change things? Is this something that you guys feel is going to be widely adopted, like straight away once once it works, or and and if so, is that why you guys are kind of like? waiting until it takes over or do you, is is a sense that, um, no, it's not something that everyone's gonna jump, jump on the bandwagon from, from the get go.
1: I mean, I think that, I think that it is gonna, I mean, right now VR development is so fragmented and you have to do so much stuff that is 100% custom just to the platform that you're doing it on. So that's at this point, because we, because OpenXR, at least the sort of vanilla, sort of like Unity implementation of it is not quite ready for prime time. Um, I don't think that that is, that's, that's not what's necessarily holding us back, but we're not sort of like, theoretically, once it works, it shouldn't be any more difficult than adding another platform. And if you happen to get three platforms out of supporting OpenXR, then great. So I do think that it's something that, I mean, every VR developer desperately wants. I don't think that it's going to necessarily change how it's not going to change anything for the, for users and for players. Um, it's what it's is going to affect though, is that it's going to mean that once everyone's on open XR, then someone could come out with a new headset and it's not a massive amount of work to port something and do all the custom stuff and work out all that sort of like, it's one of those things that like, Oh, Hey, if that platform supports open XR and has the hard respects to be able to handle it, then games should just work. Um, theoretically, it never quite happens like that, but I think that's where it's going. I mean, we're, we've already gotten to that point where most PC games, like if, as long as you hit the minimum specs, mm-hmm. like it largely takes care of it. Now it's it's still taken a long time to get to that point though. Right. Um, and there's still right. issues where I've got a couple of games in my library that I can't play because I did a driver update or something. So there's mm-hmm. always going to be that to some extent, but um, right. anything that gets us close to that is huge. Um,
0: and uh, other than marketing distribution, uh, mm-hmm. what, what are the key aspects that you look for in a uh, VR hardware manufacturer when you want to work them? Because, you know, there are other people coming in the pipeline. There's Apple coming, mm-hmm. uh, Netflix are going to be starting uh, to develop games for VR, which yep. who knows, maybe it means a potential VR headset, we don't know. Yep. Um, we, we know also that Samsung are in the game, Canon mm-hmm. is in the game. Uh it's just that they haven't released stuff yet, right? For yeah. for consumers. But we can see it coming, let's say, five or ten or fifteen years from now. What well, mm-hmm. what what kind of things are you looking for from them uh that would entice you to want to develop uh content for their platforms, other than the marketing distribution?
1: I mean, I think that again, so sort of like we're one of those things where because we're sort of like our because we're totally independent, um, we're happy to support whatever sort of like, yeah, makes sense. And we want to support as many of those as we can. Um, I think I remember, and this is kind of like tying it back into uh, the other question that you had. So yeah, we've got eight, nine-ish on our team right now, um, but that's only two engineers. Most of those people are actually working on courses and new content that sort of thing. So it's kind of one of those things where you can't just sort of like, you know, the Steam actually took two people Probably about four or five months. Again, largely because there were so many things that just didn't, you know, that didn't translate from the Oculus, and that had to be either changed or rewritten, or just working out bugs and all that sort of stuff. And even now, right. we just we just released a patch that hopefully took care of the last couple ones that a few people have found. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's kind of one of those things where it's 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 not just like you could sort of just like oh yeah that platform's coming out, so you do kind of have to prioritize. Um, and see sort of like, oh, what's, yeah, what is the thing that's going to, that you feel most comfortable about? Again, this is where I kind of put on, I take off my developer hat and I put on my business hat and just sort of like, which, uh, yeah, which, which platform are we, yeah, going to be able to get enough marketing or that they're going to have enough headsets that we'll be able to support it, so. What, what,
0: what do you think uh, from the feedback of your own team could have uh, accelerated that process uh, when you were doing things with steam like if 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 steam could provide you more support or was there something lacking on their side or it's, it's what larger- what do you wish could have could have it's largely more. what I had
1: mentioned before with just the right. OpenXR is not ready and the old OpenVR hasn't been supported in over a year. So it was just sort of right. like we just kind of had to kludge together our own solution and even rewrite some base stuff that sort of like you would expect that anything would be mm-hmm. done. And it, 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 that's just that weird thing where like that is sort of the price of working in a relatively new media like VR. It's just like everything is still changing so fast that you can't, you know, there's, the tools haven't been built. And as soon as a tool gets built, I mean, like, that's actually a great example of even the quest stuff, like, even though the quest is using the same Oculus, like, Mm -hmm. once the quest came out, everyone had to suddenly worry about a whole different set of problems in terms of optimization. And, you know, they have, they've developed some tools to make that easier. But even existing VR devs, Suddenly, had to learn a lot about mobile GPU optimization. So right. it's just a lot of that, and like you, it's VR is very much still a. It's growing so fast that as soon as like as soon as you know Steam releases an update, well now Unity has to update their stuff to support it. By the time they do that, then they've gone over here, and so Unity has to chase them. And so yeah, it's right. kind of it's just kind of a big game of cat and mouse, and that and all the drivers have to follow the and as all well. the drivers have to work out and every, and whenever they do an OS update, right. yeah. So it's just kind of I think that's just sort of the the state of working in any new in any new medium like VR. Okay, when you first
0: started uh, Walkabout Minigolf, now you had to host stuff on a server. Obviously your uh, application has grown since then and every time you add a new map it's another god knows how many polygons and whatnot that you have to cram in there to make space for. How do you plan the server part and how do you uh, adjust the server as you add your maps in to make sure that the game is still, you know, still works optimally, optimally, uh, you know, with time?
1: Um, so we're actually using a public. Um, so we're Photon is our sort of like um, under the hood sort of networking thing, again, being my first multiplayer thing. I wasn't going to try to reinvent the wheel. So um, the great thing is that we're not actually hosting our own server. Um, and that's also something that, frankly, I most indie devs, unless there's a very specific need for you to host your own server or to roll a lot of that architecture yourself, I would strongly avoid against it. Or if you just happen to be someone who you're that's part of your day job, or you just already know a lot about server, you know, client server architecture or something like that, um, so yeah, so we're actually doing it on the Photon Cloud, which the great thing is sort of like, as more people come on board, there's really not a, you know, a, a limit as far as the the server goes. And we're not even, especially being in VR as well, and the number of concurrent users, we're nowhere close to saturating their, um, their servers. So um, basically, it was that in itself was kind of a non-issue. Um, the optimization thing that you talked about, I mean, right now we are like we're constantly going back in and this even happens with soft, you know, with OS updates, we have to kind of go in and like, Oh, suddenly that something that was working great before now doesn't work. Some new feature has been added or something like that. So we're kind of constantly having to go back to old courses and, you know, tweak things and dial a few things in to make them run. But, uh, but, but yeah, I guess so we're not actually because, yeah, it's basically just a local, a locally stored game and everything um, it's really just the multiplayer and the voice aspect that even passes through the server. So, um, yeah, that's fairly straightforward. And I, yeah, I strongly recommend most indies like that use a lot of any sort of like big um, things that you can just sort of buy your way out of and not buy your way out of because it's really not that expensive like you'd we would probably be spending way more on our own dedicated server than we do on a a shared cloud server so but if there's something out there that exists don't necessarily try to invent the wheel unless you want to suddenly try selling a a new multiplayer service.
0: Awesome and uh, I I guess so basically uh, any indie devs who want to create a game uh, can't think that once you've done something you put it out it will Always constantly work. You always, it sounds to me like you always have to go back to it, always have to tweak it, maintain it, mm-hmm. because things just constantly revolving and changing. Uh, the yeah. technology keeps changing, so that's one of the things you guys have to do all the time. It sounds.
1: Yeah, I mean, and some of that is also self inflicted again because we are we're very active and sort of like as we've add people added people to the team. Folks have come in with new ideas. which so are like, oh, and like suddenly, techniques that we had used in the original, um, you know, the first few courses worked great at that scale. But as we do more complex courses, suddenly we need more opt- more optimization strategies that weren't available. So you end up sort of like rewriting that. But then it's sort of like, well, now that we got this whole new system, sort of like we can actually fix that thing back. So it's always a, it's always a tough game of like you don't want to create work for yourself but at the same time you also want to keep the project in a state that's maintainable where you don't have 20 different systems where every course is its own unique little little thing that requires cuz then your your code base is just massive and you're constantly like oh oh yeah the reason this course doesn't work is because it's using that old thing that is no longer supported in a weird way so so yeah it's uh it's we're we're probably worse about that than a lot of folks are just Again, because we're adding so much new content compared to a lot of other games but uh, but yeah it's absolutely something that anyone has to has to deal with
0: uh, I wanted to ask you a business question. Um, most entrepreneurs that I've spoken to uh, when they come up with a new entrepreneurial concept, not necessarily a game, just any other entrepreneurial things, mm-hmm. they often think about. Exiting. That's really the strategy, which shocks me uh, or, or really shocked me. You know, I'm like, well, why? Yeah. I thought you wanted to try and help the world. No, no, no. I just want to exit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so in terms of walkabout mini golf, is this something that you think about or do you want to be on it for as long as possible? Or is it a project that you're looking to eventually uh, sell? Would you happy to sell it to Facebook or well, what's your,
1: what, what's your take on, on that kind of stuff? I mean that whole thing, like that's a very sort of like I don't come from the tech world, but being in Austin, I hear a lot of that, of just sort of like yeah, that it's all about sort of um, yeah building something up and then and then yeah hitting the hitting the money button and and getting out of it. That's not that's just kind of not how I'm how I'm wired. Um, So I have like we're planning on on basically kind of keeping going on this as, as. long as it, as as we can make it sustainable. Um, and we also, just as a studio, we do have, I already mentioned, Ballanova, another game that we'd like to get back. There's another game um, that I've already sort of like I've got the, I have it in my head that I actually want to do. So we're hoping to make several games beyond that. And in my ideal scenario, Walkabout just kind of keeps going. And it's kind of one of those things that as we, as you add more people to a team, how do I put this? I'm very lucky because I've done the like the peer sort of like solo dev sort of side of things but i've also run a business so i understand some of those things that that some indie devs if you've never sort of like hired employees and just dealt with that sort of stuff it's very scary the first time but as you do it more often you kind of get a better sense of what works and what doesn't just as a management side of things so um i could uh, very much see a scenario where walkabout still is like 50% of the studio. And to be honest, it would be great if people were able to kind of hop in and out because designing a mini golf course, it's great. And you spend a month on it and you can do something cool, but then you can also dive back. And so it can either, you know, it's actually really good for something like this to get more people and fresh blood sort of like trying to do different things and pushing it in different directions because that just, um, it makes it better and every course more unique. So I guess that's sort of the long way of saying like, yeah, we're, we're, we're planning on, on doing this for as long as we can, basically.
0: So you, I mean, you, you, you released the steam version. Uh, what was the real purpose there?
1: Um, well, I mean, largely that was one. So like, just is what we were talking about before, sort of like there were a lot of people sort of like, uh, there's a lot of requests that people have had. It's like, Oh, I want feature X, Y, or Z. And one of the big ones was sort of like, when can I buy this on steam? Because I right. don't have an Oculus or don't want to buy something to the Oculus store. Um, so that which I was guess
0: is forty percent of the market. I imagine, if if the 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 numbers are true and uh, that Facebook are sixty percent, then it's a whole forty percent of people. I
1: guess. 40, yeah, forty percent of people. I I mean, it's not a big of the market, secret, yeah. especially yeah or yeah, sort of like or sorry of the number of headsets that are that's out right, there yeah. or whatnot. I think that's also one of those things where I believe that sort of like. I think that might be like the Steam number in terms of like that with on Steam, Steam, sixty percent of the users are Oculus users. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I don't know exact numbers. Um, I mean, the one other thing, and I mean, for better or worse, this is sort of something, but I've talked to tons of different devs, and like, it's one of those things that like, yes, Steam is still a market, but it is a tenth to a twentieth. Basically. So, so yeah, it is a very hard and it's a very hard number to make it work for most indie devs, um, unless you're doing something very specific. So, I mean, for better or worse, it's one of those things that if you want to sort of make a business out of it, targeting quest is still like, that's the number one thing that any, any responsible dev will tell on other indies is sort of like, if you want to sort of make a successful or even just sort of like pay for itself VR game. Um, Quest is just sort of where everything's going right now.
0: Uh, oh, I wanted to ask you, what's a huge, uh, I, the reason why I was asking you about Steam as well is not just so much on terms of getting more users to to yeah. download your, your app, but also is it an opportunity to experiment on certain features that you can't get on, you know, you can't develop on the Quest? And if so, which which of those features?
1: Um, you know, So we were already on Rift. So we already had sort of like the PC version of it. And we've turned up a couple of things and we've, you know, we sort of like all of the optimizations for Quest, we just basically turn off and let it run at full steam. Um, So we made the call because Quest is such a large, you know, it's it's such a massive part of our audience and our users that... Mm -hmm. We opted rather than trying to do like alternate versions of the courses or like upgrading assets or doing a ton of like special stuff. We'd rather do more courses because the, yes, it's true. You could do a much higher poly version of the course. You could do a lot of these different things, but then you're, you're kind of splitting the market or not splitting the market, but you're splitting the users and that some users are seeing one thing. Some users are seeing something totally different Um, and you have to model and develop everything twice so we kind of opted sort of like, we're just going to stay with this with this style. And as long as the physics and the gameplay are solid. Um, mm-hmm. The other big factor for us is also the multiplayer stuff. Because we had a lot of folks who were sort of like, oh, I've got a quest. I've been playing it. I love it. My friend, re- I really want to play with my friend, but who won't buy it through Oculus for whatever reason. Right. So that right. was also kind of one of the other reasons that that particular, um, that those players were pretty vocal about that because there mm-hmm. was... A lot of them wanting to play with their friends who are on Steam. Um, so, um, but yeah, but jumping back, we, we basically decided because we're wanting to keep making as many courses as we can reasonably do, um, mm-hmm. part of that is that we just have to maintain style across all of the different platforms as opposed to, yeah, turning on or totally developing alternate versions of the courses just for PC. Which,
0: yeah, which, uh, which, which makes a lot of sense, I would say, in terms of consistency and branding and and all that, and experience, general experience, right? So they go from one headset to the other, at least um, they're still used to it
1: and all that kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah, and it it really does play like exactly the same. There's no fundamental difference. I mean, one of the... Other than the optimizations, we also because the game is so optimized for mobile, we're able to crank up the render scale quite high. So I, when you when you're playing on uh, PC, it is like you can't see pixels like at all because the render scale is just set so high, right. Um, right? Which is it's it's awesome and it does make the game look very very crisp and definitely sort of like it is a visual a big visual step up when you're playing through PC. So
0: yeah. What's your what's your uh, ad- ad- what what's your favorite course on the
1: walkabout mini golf that you enjoy going
0: back to again and again
1: (laughs) i think i think seagull stacks hard gets a lot of gets a lot of hate i think that's probably one of my favorite ones not just because i like that's the one the snowy one it's a very very difficult course but uh yeah i think I, i think that's probably my my favorite one it's just yeah seagulls ocean but yeah like winter snow and everything coming down and, and it's a it, yeah like i said it's a very challenging course so that's probably my favorite
0: and what are some of the other vr applications that inspire you or that you think of uh, that, that yeah they inspire you as you're developing uh, walkabout mm-hmm. mini golf
1: um i'm trying. we we play a lot i mean unfortunately I spend so much time in, in vr developing that i don't get a chance to play as much as i like um I could say that, uh, I mean, we spend a lot of time in Gravity Sketch, so just creating in VR is super fun. I remember one of the games that stuck with me is The Climb. Um, I love that. Actually, that probably has a lot of, in a similar way that you're sort of, it's halfway about exploring a really cool environment. You're just exploring it in a totally different way than we're doing with Walkabout. Um, But yeah, that was another one that was one of my sort of first sort of wow moments in VR that's really stuck with me. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Actually, a lot of the other sports games, there's just something about the replayability of mm-hmm. a lot of the sports games um, that is, it's just a really natural fit, especially for that more sort of like casual audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one of the thing that's also, and part of this is just because of the, it's the nature of VR, um, but one of the things that I love about the space right now is as much as I love how pretty a lot of triple game, A games are and stuff, um, the big barrier for me and a lot of my friends in my age group um, is that I've got two kids and I just don't have time like to sink 30, 40 hours into a game. Um, so something that delivers a really tight two to like, to me sort of like eight hours is about the max. Otherwise I just literally, won't have time to get through it. So I think that's one of the the other really, really nice things about VR um, at the moment is there's just a lot more of those really tight, but short experiences uh, coming out, so. So for
0: anyone who's learning how to code uh, or who's studying how to code, and they're going to graduate or they're looking to get into the business, Mm -hmm. um, what what are three key pieces of advice that you could give them uh, for them to even think
1: about getting any shot into this business? Oh, I've got to do, well, we'll see if I get to three. Um, (laughs) The the first one that popped into my mind just when you said that is, uh, especially on the game side of things, ship a game. You will learn so much more by shipping a game than you will by spending years and years developing something. So even if it's something small for mobile, for whatever, for the App Lab, just like just anything you could do to just sort of like get something done and actually let people play it. Um, some of it is the coding side of things honestly even like even if you have no interest in anything other than being a coder there's a lot of stuff that will pop up once you're kind of like I've been like we've been talking about a little bit of sort of like oh thinking about like not only do you have to ship this game but you also have to maintain it and you're going to have to go back into that code every so often in order to just sort of like keep things running correctly or things like that that it's just, it's a very, very helpful thing to have something out there. Um, it also, there's a lot of other reasons to do it, but, but yeah, for, for folks who are more on the technical side, if nothing else, that, there's a, there's, it's well worth it to just get something shipped. Um, trying to think of other, other uh, I'm blanking on a couple other ones because that was the first one that came up. Um, I'm going to stick with that one. It's sort of like, that is all three. Ship, <laughs> ship, ship. Um, and if I come up with another one before we, we end talking, I'll, I'll chime in. Well,
0: how important is it to meet other developers or non-developers or just, uh, you know, getting yourself to be connected to to other people, even if you don't get to work with them straight away, just joining Discord groups or any other form? Is that something that, you know, would be quite important to to new people in, in this industry?
1: I think that. It's good. I mean, if nothing else, it's great to have sort of a tribe. Um, and finding that tribe is something that, yeah, that I feel like um, a lot of people will naturally seek out. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's always good. I would also say that especially more on the learning to code side of things, it's also one of those things that that is a skill set that is much more driven by. So if you're thinking in terms of like some people think like, oh, networking, it's much less important on that side of things because it's really going to be your portfolio that does it. Um, I guess maybe even one other thing that I would say is, um, and this is something that we deal with in the animation world a lot, Mm -hmm. um, but uh, your degree matters zero. Um, So as much as I sort of like, if you learn better in that environment and you're able to learn things faster by being in a more traditional learning environment. That's great, but all that matters at the end of the day is what you can do and the projects that you have on your portfolio. Um, So, yeah, even though I went to, I was actually a music major in college. Um, So I kind of came from a totally different side of things. And I did a lot of technical stuff, recording studio, and a lot of audio things that have have carried over and I still get to use a little bit, Um, (laughs) but, but yeah, but basically that's, that's one thing that's sort of like that's when we're, when I'm interviewing somebody or something like that, like that's, I might glance at that, but it really has zero bearing on, on um, the decision to hire someone or whether you're able to make a successful game or not. So uh, so yeah, just, just know that as much as some, of the, some people will try to push you towards that, most people in the industry won't, won't care at all about that.
0: And do you find that VR enables people who are a bit older, for example, in their 30s, 40s, or even 50s, or beyond that, uh, to want to change career and give it a crack, you know, give it a go to to explore how to, to, to be into VR?
1: Yeah, we have, we've got a couple of folks um, either on the team or that we've just generally talked to who are kind of getting into it, who are kind of generally, they're sort of coming over from an ancillary sort of thing, like they've been animators or designers or something like Mm -hmm. that. So they're, they're kind of in a related field and they're sort of like seeing VR for what the potential is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that maybe this is, this is not at all what you had asked, but one of the things that um, it might be worth it for some people to know is sort of like, I think that one of the big, um, things that design things that I kind of had in my mind was that because I'm used to mobile and I like things to be as simple as possible, we kind of the whole game was designed to be played with one controller and a single button. So -hmm. with just the trigger. You can play the entire game. But the way that I tested that was that I put my, my parents and a couple of other friends who are in their sixties, seventies into the headset and had them try it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So especially in VR, Getting a wide mix of people, and especially folks who have never done VR before, um, because if you can make it to the point that someone who has never picked up a VR headset can can put it on and be playing within sixty seconds, like that is a huge sort of like barrier that you have crossed off the list.
0: Right. So. Totally unrelated mean,
1: to what you, what you asked. No, no, but. It, I mean, it
0: does, I guess, because in a sense, it relates to your first answer, which was just design something, just release yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the same time, get it tested by people who have no clue. Uh, because if, uh, if people who don't understand it can get it, then you're probably on
1: a winner, I would say, because those yeah. that
0: get it will get even, even more easily. Right.
1: I would imagine. Yeah. And back before lockdowns, we did a lot and it wasn't I I realized that it wasn't necessarily for this reason, but we Mm -hmm. did a lot of events where we'd have people, you know, hop in and play different stuff. And I always had a rule sort of like that or just I found that sort of like if you ever had to explain something for more than like 15 seconds, um, just attention spans would disappear. So like if you're ever doing demos and stuff, that is a really, really good way to just sort of detect like if you can get your little spiel down and sort of like, hey, put this on, hold this. Push this. If you can, anything you can do to sort of make that demo experience as smooth as possible. Um, some games are naturally, are not going to be like that. And if you're making something that's more hardcore or aimed at a hardcore audience, that's obviously going to be a, a different thing. But um, mm-hmm. there is a huge portion of the, of the audience, especially VR, who is not traditional gamers. So.
0: No, I agree with that. I, I had a business here in Singapore before COVID called mm-hmm. VR Parties. Mm-hmm. And basically corporate companies would hire us to go out and give them VR entertainment during their own corporate events and what yeah. if, you know, or even go to their offices mm-hmm. uh, to do demos. And that was, you know, I, I had a couple of guys with me who were not in VR. They didn't even own a VR headset. Mm-hmm. And the only time they could be in VR was when we were together to go out to, mm-hmm. uh, to give demos to people. And it was, <laughs> We had to specifically pick those VR experiences where you just really hit the nail there, which yeah. did not require us to have to explain to to the because sometimes we have two hundred people, you know, mm-hmm. or five hundred people, and and they all stuck up in the line and and they all yeah. have like five minutes in VR and every five minutes we have to redo it again and again and again, and explain yeah. again and again. Oh yeah, and I'm like okay, we're going to pick these two because you just have to press this button yeah. and that button and that's it. So yeah. uh, I, I completely sympathize yeah. with and agree with, with I what mean, you said.
1: And that's also sort of like, again, I, I mentioned it before, but that's sort of why we went with mini golf is sort of like you didn't even have to explain, you don't even have to explain the goal to people. Like right. everyone knows what mini golf is. So like picking something that's like that, that is physical, that people just instantly grok. Like there is something very helpful and powerful about that. If you can, if you can make it work with the game that you want to make.
0: Well, on that note, thank you so much, Lucas, for, for today's call. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, it's just, it's been an eye opener and, or an ear opener
1: uh, to listen to, to what you had to say today. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for having me.